Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine, and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Hello there and welcome to Girls on Film, the brand new movie podcast brought to you by female film critics. My name is Anna Smith. I'm a film critic, broadcaster and president of the Critics Circle. And I will be welcoming a series of fabulous females to discuss releases from their perspectives. It's not a girls-only club, I must say. Men will be welcome as guests. But in a world where women make up more than 50% of moviegoers, but only about 22% of critics, we're here to offer some balance. Now, obviously, the conversation about representation has been getting louder lately, but my guests this week have been tirelessly campaigning since the days when Time's Up just meant you had to finish your pint. They are Kate Muir, former chief film critic at The Times, and now a screenwriter and campaigner with Time's Up UK, Women and Hollywood and Bird's Eye View. And Karina Antrobus, film writer and founder of the Bechdel Test Fest. Welcome to you both. Hello. Hello. Right, today we'll actually be discussing the Bechdel test as well as diversity in film criticism. But first, an upcoming release from one of the greatest female directors of all time, Agnes Varda. Faces, Places is a road trip documentary that sees Varda exploring rural French communities with the photographer J.R., who helps her to create huge posters of characterful locals that adorn and enhance the walls, everything from barns to trains. Kate, I think you're a fan of this film. Would you like to tell us more? I think this is a gorgeous film. It's incredibly warm. It's incredibly human. And sometimes that's dismissed as a woman's point of view, but it's intellectual as well. And when she goes to sort of a mining town and finds the old miners and then prints up these huge pictures of them and puts them on the decayed houses that are now falling apart, she's making this incredible political statement about what happens to these working class communities and ordinary people who don't often feature in these kind of films with small, small stories, but she blows them up big. I think it's it's very powerful and she's so sympathetic and she also says, because she's, you know, being a film director for years and years and years, she's 90 for God's sake, she's got mad hair, which is kind of purple on the bottom and white at the top and she runs around and she must be about four foot nine and she just races around these places and charms people and then finds their hearts, I think. And I recently did it up in Tyneside. You know, we had a big screening up there. The locals came in and, you know, in in a way, what was happening all around France with its industrial disaster zone was the same thing that had happened on Tyneside. And sort of seeing these people rise out and become part of the story was just fantastic. That's really interesting to hear about your experiences in Britain with this film, because I thought there were parts of France I saw in this, which is not a France that you ever tend to see on film. You know, it was very unexpected, as you say, with the miners and the very kind of depleted areas, but also that wonderful sense of community that she picks up on. And I feel like films like Leave No Trace recently had the same kind of positive spirit about being kind to strangers, but not spoon feeding us that kind of message, but in a really upbeat way. Karina, what did you feel about this? I'm interested also to know if you felt it was a feminist film. Um, I loved the film and hands up it's actually my first Varda film that I watched I thought that was a really interesting way for me to enter into her whole universe as the last film is my first film Um, and then it gave me ample opportunity to go back and look at her other work because there's a whole retrospective going on across the country now which is just 
brilliant. Um, is it a feminist film? Well, I mean, the credentials of feminism are, are wide and amorphous. So, I mean, yes, she's a woman. She's made a film from her point of view, her perspective. She's mined into her own history with her own personal um, relationships with her husband and her own filmmaking craft. So from a personal point of view, she it's her film. So yes, it is a feminist film. But then she's also done a lot of rising up, as Kate says, of the every man or every woman, should I say, like the the women who are so often sidelined. So it's the wives of the of the workers who finally get their opportunity to shine and they're up on high and you can sense and you can see that it's the first time that they've had such presence and they're really relishing in it. So I think it's absolutely a feminist film. Yeah, when she makes those, she goes to the docks, she meets the dock workers, she finds the dock workers' wives yeah. who turn out to be truck drivers and things like yeah. that. And she puts up posters of them, which must be 10 containers high. Yeah, it looks pretty dangerous. <laughs> so basically at the end of that film, she takes women and makes them giants. And for mm. me... That's quite a simple, brilliant image. And, I mean, she's always done this and she's always focused on film. You know, she made one of the first abortion musicals, really, you know. Have there um, been many of those? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. That genre <laughs> so old um, now. And, you know, but she has always put women at the centre of her and, and human human stories and sort of neighbourhoods. And and it's something I think she's been derided for throughout her career, in a sense, in, in the, the very obvious kind of male canon of criticism has put her to one side mm. because it seems so personal and it's a bit documentary and mm. it's a bit of a feature and you know that isn't high-end art is it but it is and I was thinking about her and you know Jean-Luc Godard of you know the, the new wave mm. and how Godard is putting out these films now which get lots of attention at Cannes they get into competition they're incredibly dull they're unpalatable there are a set of images all bodged together it's very very hard mm. to be interested in them and she is 90 and she's still innovating and trying new forms mm. it's easy what you say about the canon and goddard because like karina i really wasn't as familiar with vada until recently fairly recently i think that's because i grew up sort of being told this is the canon this is the serious french film you know that you exactly. should be watching exactly. and, and it's almost time to revisit this kind of thing from a lot of perspectives i think and it's wonderful that now i hope she's starting to get the credit she deserves. Mm. I mean, I was um, lucky enough this year in Cannes when the 82 female directors and women in film went on the steps and did a big protest, a sort of silent protest about women in film to represent only the 82 women who've ever been nominated for the Palme d'Or, yeah, which is absolutely with... extraordinary. She was there with all these incredible directors. And I was um, lucky enough to go to, to this party, name drop at Salma Hayek Suite afterwards. <laughs> absolutely extraordinary. I don't know what I was doing there, but it was amazing. And... Um, <laughs> All these incredible women were there, all chatting away, very busily chatting to each other. Um, no one was more important than anyone else, everyone on a level. And as Varda walks in, everyone cheers. They stood up, they roared. And it was a wonderful feeling and that sense of kind of what deserved praise for a woman who's worked so hard, finally getting her just desserts. Just you, really. Yeah, Yeah, I yeah. mean, that's... And she's such a political presence at 90, going up the steps with Kate Blanchett towering over her, you know, and she's just bustling up there and she's got her stick. And you just think... You are absolutely fantastic. She's one of my great heroes. And I went to see her speak at the BFI when she was on tour the other day. And at the end, 
you know, lots of us were in tears. Yeah. It was just so, so moving. And I loved her film, um, Cleo from Five to Seven. Yeah, that was which my was second. 1962, black and white. Yeah. The story of a woman finding out about love and cancer, for God's sake or not, and shot almost in kind of real time. It was a really, really radical piece of filmmaking mm. and it's exquisite to look at. Mm. And, you know, it needs more love. In Faces Places, what did you feel about JR? Because we haven't really talked about him. So he's the <laughs> photographer, sort of slightly enigmatic photographer who's constantly wearing sunglasses, hiding behind them. And he functions as a kind of co-presenter in a way. And he goes on the journey with Agnes um, throughout France. And obviously he's involved in the art. But Karina, how did you feel about his presence in the film? Did Because I wasn't quite sure I got a lot from him because he was such a distant personality. I thought they worked really well together. And I think when you're looking at these two very different characters, for me, I got how a very young artist and a very old artist has been able to create this piece of art as a documentary. And it has still worked so well. And I think it's a testament to ageism in a way. Like it doesn't have to, we don't have to worry about how old people are. We can, as long as you still have the soul and the heart of an artist, you can still get along and make wonderful films um there was just so many quite comical differences even with their height I mean he's about six foot something and she's obviously four foot something and um he's a man and she's a woman and and uh yeah I just loved connecting the dots between their differences and still seeing such similarity in the way that they want to present people because what JR does with his work um he is very much from the same kind of roots he found a camera on the streets when he was a vagabond, as he calls himself, um, started taking pictures of his, of his friends and then decided that was his calling. And he wanted to basically, and is, which is very much in the wheelhouse of Agnes Varda, put people, ordinary people, up on stage, put them up on the streets. And so his career of taking pictures and blowing them up and putting them big and making people gigantic very much chimes with Agnes's work. And... I've listened to a whole heap of podcasts and you can tell that they've got so much love for one another. They're just so mm. great together. There's a real cinematic romance going on between them and I, I loved watching it. And they were teaching each other a lot as well. So there was that cross-generational educational relationship which I enjoyed witnessing. Great, okay. So Kate, I'd like to chat to you a little bit more about the reaction in Tyneside because I want to tell our listeners if they've never watched any Agnes Varda films, does it matter and what will they get from this? I think people, certainly in Tyneside, were laughing, they were crying, they were incredibly engaged with the kind of joys and, and there's a very sad bit in the film as well. Um, what also is really interesting is how this film deals with memory and people talked mm. about that a lot afterwards, about how, you know, these things are forgotten, these communities are forgotten and you can pick out one moment from one person and kind of memorialise it and what do we remember and what do we forget and what does the geography of a whole neighbourhood disappear into and they they were very interested in that too. I think she communicates so well straight away on a very simple, warm, emotional level. And then there's all this intellectual stuff you can play with if you want to. Yeah, it's a very accessible film, I think. Yeah. And that's the thing. I think don't dismiss it as art house or something that you can't relate to. So, mm. yeah, absolutely. So that's Faces Places. It's in UK cinemas from Friday 21st of September. <laughs> 
Now we're on to a regular spot in which each one of us will pick a film we've seen recently that passes the Bechdel test and one film that fails it. Firstly, Karina, you started the Bechdel test first. Can you explain to us exactly what the Bechdel test is? Well, it's a very simple three-step rule that says uh, if a film has two women in it that have a conversation with each other about something other than a man. And it's a very low bar measure which very few well we're limping over the 50% mark which if you think how ridiculously easy it is to pass that test all two women have to do is say hi Jemima can you pass the salt and Jemima needs to say yes okay Kate here you go and it's passed and then for the rest of the film it can be completely misogynistic but um so it's an interesting metric to apply to films and it says a lot about the bias that is um out there in the film industry and what have you chosen for your passer this week I did a cheeky little watch of the book club on my uh, trip to Toronto this this week and um, I kind of saved it for a plane movie because it looks like a plane movie and hands up, I you know, I didn't rush out to go to see it at the cinema and now I'm really kicking myself and neglect- that I neglected it. It was so fun. It was so interesting. It was frivolous and funny and it was just... It was great in in the way that you had this great dynamic between these four friends and they're all very, very rich and affluent in America and they're just coming to the um, autumn days of their lives and they're talking about their relationships and they've got lots of different dynamics that they're there to explore. One's widowed, one um, is trying to rekindle the romance in her current relationship, another one's starting online dating because her ex-husband's gone off with a younger girl Um, and another one is having to deal with the fact that her daughters are now basically seeing her as having one foot in the grave already and just trying to make sure that she's okay and really patronising to her and I think these are all issues that I can only imagine just from like witnessing my mum and her friends deal with on a very frequent basis. Maybe not with as much wine and glossy clothes <laughs> and amazing lifestyles, but I do think that these are issues and relationships that I can look forward to. That's nice. <laughs> See, that, that's, the, that's the purpose of a film like this, isn't it? To reassure you there is yeah. life after a certain age. Exactly. And we must mention some of the cast as well. Jane Fonda, Mary Steenberg, yep. um, and Diane Keaton. Diane Keaton is my favourite, absolute favourite one. She's, I mean, she's just so wonderful in this. You see, because uh, I actually found her kind of annoying in this. Oh, did I you? start to feel Diane Keaton is just being Diane Keaton now and she's just being terribly, terribly ditzy. But that's how I like her. Yeah? <laughs> yeah I've just I seen want, it one I, too many times. Okay, fair enough. But yeah, no, I just liked her so much. I think it was because she was the most um, accessible to me as somebody that I can actually recognise in day-to-day mm-hmm. life, whereas the others were so much more affluent and so much more aspirational in it. Like one, one runs a whole empire and uh, tots around her hotel on, and has uh, totally declined any kind of love and relationship because she's ultimately she's scared of rejection. This is Jane Fonda's character. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, Jane yes. Fonda. I mean, she's so fun. To be. Yeah. She's so fun. I, yeah. I loved her a lot. But yeah. no, I, I loved her. I, I like to nickname this film Spanx in the City <laughs> because it's very... <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. And this is what's so yeah. interesting about it. We've always loved girl gangs on screen. We've had, I mean, I grew up watching The Golden Girls with my mum and then you have Sex in the City and essentially this is Sex in the City couple of decades on. It's exactly what it is. I mean, yeah. it's massively cheesy. I don't think oh, it works God, on yeah. every level. But no. it, it really does pass the Bechdel test. It really does. It didn't get very nice reviews from men, did it? It got some one stars and two stars. And I'm interested to know why. I haven't seen it myself. But why do you think that was? 
Well, well, there you go. Yeah. It's not, I mean, yeah, it's not a perfect film. And, and hence, like I said, I watched it on the plane, which is where you kind of reserve your mm-hmm. candy floss type movies, um, ones that you don't feel need the whole cinematic experience. But um, yeah, it's it's silly. Some of the some of the dialogue is a little naff. You know, it's not going to win any Oscars, but it was just a lot of fun. And I think we need to, I personally need to remind myself that cinema is supposed to be fun and recreational. And it doesn't always have to be something deep and meaningful and, you know, change the rest of your life. But who knows, maybe book club will change the rest of my life. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it I'll will. start an empire <laughs> and open a, open a hotel somewhere and uh, never find love. <laughs> Let's move on to your Bechdel test fail. What failed the test for you this week? So it's an interesting one because I have just come back from Toronto Film Festival and one of the most interesting films for me was First Man, Damien Chazelle's um Man in Space movie, and so it's a story of Neil Armstrong, isn't it? With yes. Ryan Gosling, yeah. yes, exactly that. Um, and Neil Armstrong, played by Ryan Gosling, is a very bland character. And even just from like listening to um, recollections of what he was like, that is what he was like. He was a very quite boring mathematical man. <laughs> I mean, I think you kind of need to be in order to want to go up to space in some respect. But um, it's a very masculine movie. But what you do have is these interesting representations of what his family life is like and that's really important to this film his family life and that as reflective of what that American era was like at that time and Claire Foy is a fantastic character even though she doesn't get much screenplay but it's kind of okay because it's the point it's kind of the point because the whole movie is basically talking about how masculine and how privileged that whole expedition was in the first place like they didn't need to go to space they wanted to go to space it was a big show off to the rest of the world of what America could do and again it's interesting in this time and age looking at obviously the Trump era Trump's talking about making America great again and I think that's the kind of era that he's talking about making America great again when they were just doing things because they could not because they had to and during that expedition there were so many marginalized groups that were left behind black communities were still suffering Women were at home just waiting for their husbands to come home. So I think it's almost on purpose that it doesn't pass the Bechdel test. That's interesting. And it's saying yeah. a lot about that. And the only conversations that are had between the women is the wives, and they are only talking about the men. Right. Is that true, though? Because um, I'm sorry to pick you up on a technicality. I saw it the other yeah. night, and I, I agree with you that it's very interesting. It's possibly a deliberate fail. If it is a fail, but isn't there a... Ver- this, is, this is one of the things you were talking about. It's a tiny moment. Mm. Doesn't one of the neighbours come to the door and, and welcome her to the neighbourhood and not yes. mention the husband? Yes, yes. That's I was really a small like, does, thing. Yes, well, exactly. I mean, it, I guess it kind, that would technically make it pass... Yes, I think that would that would be yeah. the passing passing moment. But I was thinking about that. I was like, does it actually pass? Yeah. Because but I could it's only... very minor. It's very minor. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it should be a conversation of worth. It can't yes. just be about socks or doorways or you know. Yeah, I, it should be a absolutely. conversation that has some meaning. And and it's a very you know it's a difficult definition, but it's useful that it's there because we can play with it and talk about it. And, yeah. you know. Exactly. Kate, yeah. what have you chosen for your past? Um, I love this film. It's the Miseducation of Cameron Post by Desiree Akavan. Yeah. Um, and it stars Chloe Grace Moretz as a lesbian teenager who snogs her girlfriend secretly on prom night. And it's set in the nineties, isn't it? And her mother, send, her mother and father, send her away to a gay conversion camp 
uh, for, for the gayness to be removed from her. And it's called God's Promise. It's rather like a boarding school. But what was really interesting about this is it's this very political idea. In fact, all the characters were beautifully sketched with kindness and complexity, which is what I really love. It wasn't hammering you over the head. It was incredibly subtle. And the kind of the teachers at this weirdo camp are indeed very weird and you work out exactly why they've landed there themselves and then there's the whole fun in a way of you know that kind of boarding school moment where you hang out with the sort of the difficult people the wicked people the people sneaking a fag downstairs or growing marijuana in the forest or whatever and so there's that traditional kind of fighting back against authority uh, that also happens and the other thing I like about it is I love Sasha Lane who was in American Honey and she plays one of the, the other girls at the boarding school and she's, she's just fantastic. And I kind of like the way it does really go down the love interest route. It doesn't make her necessarily fall in love, no spoilers, mm. but with, with someone in the camp, which you might expect would happen. But actually there's, there's a bit of romance in flashback. But as you say, it's very much focused on real relationships and friendships. Mm. Yeah, and so it's, it's a great choice. So from that female point of view, and, and just uh, while not being a coming-of-age locker movie that we've seen a million, million times, but it really goes to kind of a sort of centre of female soul. I love it. Yeah, that's a great film. Now, do you have a Bechdel test fail, Kate? <laughs> it was the thing I was digging through the last, like, I've only seen maybe 10 movies in the past sort of month and a half, and usually I would see, you know... 100 or something when I was a critic and now I'm a screenwriter yeah. I actually pick the movies I go to see and of course I hadn't gone to see any bad movies um, so I was sort of hoping to dig one up and then I was thinking oh, I've just seen such great stuff but you said to me interesting that you were sort of avoiding watching films that were focused on men because yeah. you didn't have to yeah and yeah. I mean I think the last bad movie I saw was Mission Impossible and that is so bad I mean there are women who do things in it but the fact is the two women in it are sort of look interchangeable seem to be the same person have no lines and and you know <laughs> one kiss with kind of Tom Cruise and you know that's just the most annoying irritating sort of movie to have to go and see and I don't have to see them anymore. Ah, I'm, very, I'm kind of happy for you, but I also want to slightly pick you up on that because I would argue that sometimes when you look, well, number one, obviously there are some great films with all men and war films, etc. But when you look at certain films and they might look like they're very macho, actually, as Karina was saying with First Man, they might mm. have something to say about gender that you may not have predicted. Yeah. So I'd like to sort of go in actually with my, my fail um, of the week, and that is American Animals, which resoundingly fails the Bechdel test. Mm. But I think what's interesting about it is the very fact that it doesn't, and it has a lot to say about fragile masculinity. It's the true story about four male art college students who planned a heist that went very badly, kind of hysterically wrong. It bends documentary and drama. And uh, women are kind of mostly absent from this story. Uh, there's one librarian who who features heavily a female, but the absence of women is what is the point of this film in mm. many ways. It's something you can read into it. And these were young. Young men who had a sense of lack of direction, lack of positive role models, and are desperate to find some kind of emotional outlet. And I sort of felt that if they'd have had women in their lives a little bit more, maybe this wouldn't mm. have happened. There were no girlfriends and mothers are very much in the background. So that is a fail, but also 
I know a lot of female film critics like myself have liked this film. Mm. So that's what I that's my fail. My my choice for a pass is one we're all very aware of, and that is Widows, which Ray, is I'm yes. dying film. I need to so see good. that. I'm desperate. Have you both seen it? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, it is absolutely terrific. It's out in the UK, sixth of November. It's opening LFF London Film Festival. Obviously, Steve McQueen's film, based on a Linda Lepant novel about rather it's a TV series, Linda mm. Lepant TV series, and it's about women whose husbands were criminals. They died in a heist. Three very different women come together to plan a robbery that will give them financial freedom, and it's all about that. It's about freedom. And it's Elizabeth Debicki, Michelle Rodriguez, Viola Davis. And um, these characters, they talk about money. They talk about practicalities of planning a heist. They talk about childcare. They talk about cars. They talk about work. They talk about the future. And do you know what I really liked about this is they talk about each other. You know mm. how women, well, just people, they talk about the other people they hang out with mm. when they're mm. not there. Mm. And this is just something you hardly ever see in films. But you have Elizabeth Tabiki and Michelle Rodriguez's characters discussing Viola Davis's character, saying, because mm. she's hired them and said, look, you know, here's the heist. Are you in? Are you out? And they think she's a bit mental. Mm. So they're kind of trying to suss her out. Um, but I'd also like to say this also massively passes the reverse Bechdel test because there are some great conversations between men. Robert Duval is fantastic with Colin Farrell. And there's also, if there's a race Bechdel test, I know there are various versions of that it also very much passed that because mm. there's people of colour having lots of conversations so mm. um, massive thumbs up for widows in our final segment I'd like to look at the latest news that's been getting the film world talking some predictably woeful statistics about the diversity of film critics from a US group called Annenberg Inclusion Initiative Kate, you've been speaking to the research team. What have they discovered? Well, there's this fantastic woman called Stacey Smith who's actually coming to London to talk about this at the London Film Festival. And her survey is Critics' Choice 2, and it's two years, the last two years, of 300 films and who reviewed them, what colour they were, what sex they were. And very interestingly, and not surprisingly, 78.7% of those reviewers are men and 83% of those are white men and 21% are women. And one of the really sort of disturbing statistics is for underrepresented female critics, people of colour, 3 so really, that voice is not being heard mm. and those people get to review less films than the white critics who are often doing, you know, seven films a week and the other people are doing one film a week. So it's incredibly skewed. Also, one of the interesting things about this study that's new is how does a critic's identity impact film reviews? And it turns out, surprise, surprise, that white male critics review films differently from underrepresented female critics. And so if you have a black female lead, the white critic generally just doesn't seem to love it so much and yet you get a much more complex, sympathetic review, more stars from someone who understands that world. But the other thing is you can't quite talk about the tiny little details and the tiny little things that people say. You look at the statistics, but it's the tone of the way things are dismissed. And I think we've all experienced mm. that. That's very interesting. I think that's a good point. It's something that I've heard from female filmmakers quite a lot, that they feel there's a slightly sneery tone from some male critics. Now, of course, we're not dismissing all male film critics. Many of our mm. colleagues and peers are fantastic mm. and very responsible. But there is sometimes what they call an unconscious bias. You know, people are perhaps, whether they're deciding what to feature, whether their editor's deciding what to put in the paper this week, or whether they're film critics who have decided to focus on a specific part of a movie. I remember a male critic saying, oh, he didn't have space to mention the women in Blade Runner. Um, what a shame there wasn't space for it in his review. But instead, he went on about the music for about half an hour. So I'm like, OK, so he's making a choice here. Mm. You know, yeah. I mean, Karina, do you think it matters? 
Um, I think this does matter because ultimately there is an element of this criticism being part of the film's success. So if those critics are panning a particular movie, there are still people out there that will only go on the basis of a good review or a star rating, let's face it. So, yeah, I mean, if we have more female film critics who are able to connect with that film on a level which is going to soulfully talk to them that might otherwise surpass a man, not, you know, just just because, but just because there are particular... Um, narratives and experiences that just won't connect with a man because he's a man, and that is absolutely fine. But I think by having more female film critics, obviously we'll have a, a, a more neutral idea of how a film actually is because I don't want to hear from just one opinion. I don't want to hear from just women or just men. I just I do genuinely want to hear both sides of the story. Mm. And it's not just about gender. It's about, it's about life experience. It's about class. It's about socioeconomic status. It's about race. It's about culture. And it is true that when you look around the room in a screening room, yeah. nine times out of ten, you will see faces who look, that look very, very similar. Yeah. How do you feel about diversity in film criticism in that respect? Um, I think this is another th- thing that's quite sad because there are so few um, women of colour who are directing films, people of colour directing films. There are so, so few films that are explaining and and mining the black experience so to think that there are stories that resonate with me or are personal to me that are going to be reviewed by somebody that's just not going to get it that makes me quite upset personally and then it also on a on a more um activist level as somebody who works hard to make sure that there is a good representative of experiences on the screen I want to make sure that those experiences are out there for people to see themselves as relevant on screen and in, and enjoy cinema in the way it should be enjoyed, communally, at the multiplex, together, and seeing themselves on screen to, you know, just enjoy the cinema experience. That's important to me. Yeah, and, you know, I've spoken to a lot of um, young actors that have said, you know, actors of colour, they said that they grew up and they just never saw themselves on the screen. And then mm. the, the more of these films that are made, the more we breed the wonderful talent of the future yeah. and the people that are inspired. Yeah. You know, the two big films that have crashed the box office have been you know Black Panther and Crazy Rich Asians yeah. which is coming here just this week and I love Crazy Rich Asians it is it. hilarious it's great fun and also every single kind of background scene of bling is just a joy to watch apart from you know the characters who are all really good really well written and it's a really mainstream film but yet you know you really I'm very interested in the response of Asian critics to that who can I look to in our national papers oh there's like one person Mm. and every single lead critic on every national paper Mm. is a white man and and this this bothers me as well because as one of the few people of colour who are in this industry I do often feel that sense of responsibility in in a way to be that person that is looked to like oh is it good and I'm like I don't know. As as a black person, it is good or it is bad. And I, I don't actually like that because I want to be able to review films from my own personal perspective, not because I'm reviewing films because I'm the black voice in the room or the female voice yeah. in the room. And this is also the importance of having a diverse group of people in the film industry in every fold of it to make sure that that burden isn't put on those small minorities of people because that's extra work. Yeah. That's extra work and it's extra emotional work. Yeah. 
That's a really good point. I think, you know, people can get pigeonholed right from the start. And, and I certainly found I was always getting the chick flicks and for some reason the kids' films when yeah. I started out, mm. but never from female editors, interestingly. Yeah. So, but I think, I hope things are changing, but I think you make a really valid point there. I think things like Rotten Tomatoes, when you just see that slew of reviews all by men and it's something like 72%, and they've made this attempt now to increase the number of women appearing on that site, but people often click on that and then click on booking their tickets. So if it's, you know, rotten or good or whatever, that has this incredible effect and the stars have the effect. And then they have the effect of whether we're going to get the film out to Tyneside, to Glasgow. You know, yes, it will show in London, but if it's a small film and, you know, lots of women have given it five stars and given it that push and are willing to talk about it in cinemas, then, you know, something like Faces Places can really take off. And, you know, we really need to talk more about... Mm. what we love. Mm. Did you see The Spy Who Dumped Me? No. I thought that was a really interesting example. No. So I... Because I, <laughs> cause actually most most people who reviewed it were men and I went yeah. to see it and I was I surprised by how much I enjoyed it because Did I was you? expecting oh, it to be quite okay. rubbish. I mean, the trailer is very badly cut, so that's unfortunate. I didn't go based on the trailer, I'm yeah. sorry. And yeah. I, I'm normally better than that, but... No. Yeah, no, it's a terrible trailer. But actually, um, obviously, Kate McKinnon from Ghostbusters is ab absolutely oh, brilliant. And, and what it was is that kind of confessional female stand-up style humour that you relate to, like those moments that, that happen in the privacy of your own bathroom that you don't tell anyone else. And it just it just made all that come out in a very, very funny way, Mila mm. Kunis and Kate McKinnon. And I thought that compensated for a lot of the creaky plot holes and the so-so action and such like. Okay. And I think men watching that probably would have gone, oh, yeah, OK, maybe it was a giggle, but put more of a focus mm. on the creaky plot points because they couldn't relate to the humour. And I think that's not always the case. And there are many cases where men can, for example, Ocean's 8, I don't think, relied on that very specific kind of gender humour. But I think Spy Who Dumped Me, and just occasionally you do get those things which very, very specifically appeal to women. Mm. And um, that was an example where I thought I'd have liked to see more women reviewing it. Mm. And I guess it's the same with um, people of colour stories. So, for instance, Yardi. There was a lot in Yardi that I related to as somebody that grew up in East London, as somebody who's been to Jamaica various times to see family. And, yeah, the reviews weren't great. It's not a perfect film, but there are elements of that that are actually really bang on and they've done very well and the research is in there and the design is very good and it's certainly something that I recognise as work has been put in there and it's paid off. Yeah, I thought Yardi was um, done a disservice by a lot of critics. I mean, like, it was a three out of five from me, as you say, technically very good. And actually an improvement on the book, I thought, if you read mm, the book. Yeah. And, and that's a perfect example of exactly why we need more diversity in film criticism yeah. on every level. For sure. But I do have to say as well that I do want to make sure that when women are reviewing films and when people of colour are reviewing films, that they're not... You know, criticism is still an important job and we it does need to be used effectively to uphold the standard of film. So... To a certain extent, you can look at a film and go, OK, I'll give it a little bit more of a push or I'll give it a little bit of a chance more because it's going to need that little bit more help. And I, I, I understand that. But also, if a film's bad, it's bad. And I do believe in that. Absolutely. I think we can't do positive discrimination in any kind of way. And I think yeah. that's an important th thing to point it, out It here. serves no one. We are responsible critics. Yeah. We give films a fair hearing. But it's about giving them a hearing, isn't it, really? Mm -hmm. And the right people having a chance to have their voice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, on that note, you've all been wonderful. Thank you very much. And that's it for today. Many thanks to Karina Antrobus and Kate Muir for joining me. And thanks from me, Anna Smith, for listening to Girls on Film. You're not too smart, are you? <laughs> I like that in a man.